Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Game of Thrones podcast by Bald Move. We're the officially unofficial podcast for HBO's Game of Thrones television series, as well as George Martin's Targaryen history book, Fire and Blood, Volume 1, as well as the officially official podcast for uh, our, our new book, Gods of Thrones. I'm your host, Aaron. And I'm Anthony. Anthony, as he has for many weeks now, is joining me uh, as the co-author of Gods of Thrones, a book on the religions and cultures and real and the real world inspirations thereof, the the Song of Ice and Fire, called Gods of Thrones. Welcome back, Anthony. I we um we talked last year about Megor, how he ruled for six years and sixty six days, and how that uh, has like some biblical significance of being an antichrist number. And yes. I woke today to check our Amazon reviews, and we now have 66. So We have 66 Amazon reviews. Does that mean we're, we're, one, we're one short of the Mark of the Wild Beast? Is we're, are we two-thirds yeah. an Antichrist? What the, what's, yeah. what's the biblical significance of that? Well, I, I wasn't going to mention this, but uh-huh. ironically, I, I sprouted horns this morning. <laughs> I, I now... I now have two horns protruding from my forehead that weren't there last night. Well, you know, I checked some of the apocryphal prophecies, and they said that when low, when the 66th review was sealed, that Lord Bezos would offer 10% off the, the list price for <laughs> Gods of Thrones. And, and low, it has occurred. Uh, they, like, the Amazon took us off sale some point over the weekend, but now we're back off 10% off list price. If you want a great Christmas present uh, for a hard-to-please Game of Thrones fan, you want to guarantee it's got information that's entertaining, that they haven't seen or read or been exposed to before, I can I can recommend Gods of Thrones to you, uh, Antony's new book, and you can get it 10% off right now, and Amazon is telling me that it will definitely ship in time for Christmas. So check that out, and don't take my word for it, because I'm going to re- read one of these recent reviews, Steve D., Says Aaron and Anthony provide a wonderful avenue to explore both the Game of Thrones television show and the corresponding novels, A Song of Ice and Fire. Gods of Thrones is funny, approachable, and a self-contained book that has all necessary information to understand the wide variety of life and culture represented in Martin's world. But if you're like me, you'll want to use this book and its detailed collection of footnotes as a jumping-off point for much more. There are seemingly limitless steps in which you can dive deeper into the blurred line Martin created between his fictional world and reality of which we as Amazon consumers exist. Because of the Kickstarter, I feel lucky that I was able to observe the evolution of this project and the passion and energy it took to make a reality. But lastly, I wanted to apologize to Jeff Bezos for I've robbed him of the opportunity to broker the transaction of this great work. And for my transgression, I've been cursed to never wear the blue checkered badge of verified purchaser again. So, <laughs> I, I mean, I, I see multiple prophecies and transgressions and, the, the, you know, I don't know if we're going to have a dance of Amazons coming up or what. Is Jeff, if, is Jeff Bezos more like good king 
Jaharis or is he more like the cruel Megor? What what would you say, Aaron? Uh I I want to see how the uh the Bezos Musk war of 2025 works out. <laughs> that's a good Be, that's, that's a very I, prudent costume, Yeah. I'm not sure if I'm a green man or a black man at this point. Uh right. Yeah. I think Be- Bezos is the green because he's the copper lord, and we all know the copper turns green when it oxidizes. And Musk, of course, has taken the black ever since calling a heroic Australian or is a New Zealand diver a pedophile? I don't know. Uh, it, it, I missed it, it, that. He's it, he's it, he's kind of gone off the deep end a little bit, hasn't he? he yeah, yeah. So he, I mean, maybe that's the the true the true Megor of the West. Um, but we'll we'll have to see. We'll we'll be following these events very closely and with interest in the in the coming weeks ahead. Actually, we're going to be uh, bringing our coverage to a close next week. In addition to Anthony joining me, I've also got my buddy Kim Renfro from the Insider and her excellent coverage of uh, God's or Game of Thrones. Uh, she's going to be joining to talk to me about this last section of Fire and Blood next week. I think Anthony and I will also have a bonus podcast on religion that comes out at some point after that. But our our last official podcast on Gods of Thrones and Fire and Blood until next spring where we welcome the release of our second volume of Gods of Thrones and as well as the return of Game of Thrones, the HBO series. So if you've got feedback, now's the time to send it in to Game of Thrones at baldmove.com for consideration next week. Oh, and before we get, begin, I want to do a little bit of housekeeping and let everybody, especially our club members, know our Christmas celebration here at Bald Move that we do annually is in full swing this year. It's themed... A very Giamatti Christmas. We are doing reviews of all the Paul Giamatti Christmas movies. That's right. I said movies. He's in a few. We And we're also doing an original work of fan fiction called The One Man Manger, in which Paul Giamatti tries to greenlight a last-minute Christmas project. And uh, Jim and I are going all out on that for club members. It's an eight-part miniseries. You can see the first two parts Right now on baldmove.com is for club members only. And if you're not a club member and you've been sitting on the sidelines waiting for a reason to join, well, we're giving 25% off our annual subscriptions to the club. So if you go to baldmove.com, you can't miss it. There's a giant Giamatti dressed up as Santa Claus, and there's a join the club button. If uh, you're not a club member, it'll take you to the special discount page. And if you are a club member, it will take you to a link that has all of our Christmas content. All right. Let us talk about the second part. So we read from Jaharis and Allison's Triumphs and Tragedies to the essentially the kind of the close or like this the the closing moments of the 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 dance with dragons, um, the dying of the dragons, uh, Rhaenyra's triumphant. What did you think of this second third of the book, Anthony? Just in in general. Sadly, I. It was it was a really difficult slog for for most of the section. There were moments that uh, that were great and that I wouldn't want to miss. In fact, one of the most interesting moments in the whole book, I think, is in this section. Mm. Boy, there was just a lot of stuff I didn't care about uh, right right in the middle here. Yeah, I you? I thought the first two thirds of this second third. <laughs> Uh, if that makes any sense, were mm-hmm. still pretty compelling. I, as I mentioned, like Jaharis, I think, um, aside from maybe Aegon the Conqueror, which we already knew a lot about, Jaharis is kind of the standout hero um, and central figure of interest with his his queen, Allison. 
and and that's where when as he got older and he had some kind of missteps with his younger because he him and Queen Allison had like eleven children, and the four youngest gave them a lot of problems for for one reason or another. And there's also a lot of death in the family. There, I, I felt like that uh, Jaharis is kind of amalgam of the triumphs of like a Caesar Augustus and that he, you know, found King's landing brick and he's left it marble. Um, Mm. and that there's lots of talks about him improving the city and widening its streets and, and, uh, bringing in like building uh, great aqueducts that bring fresh water into the city. And he built the majority of the famous roads, like the King's road that kind of stitched the land together. And, um, and but also there's a lot of kind of like the last czar of Russia in that there he there's this young king and queen who loved each other very much and had had lots of uh, had children but so much death so much death in the family as was common you know in in, in right. until we get to the modern age yeah we talked about how he, you know you had this uh, this good king Jaharis who lived you know reigned for over fifty years and you know he everyone talked about him being the good king and how his reign was one long summer, and how do you make something like that interesting? Well, you make that interesting by just filling it with a bunch of, uh, you know, death and, and betrayals. And the earlier right. ones, it seems like the king kind of bears fairly lightly because, um, you know, when he gets in minor wars, he's able to distinguish himself, and everything kind of works out. Uh, all to all to the better. The Sea Lord steals three dragon eggs, but he's able to rest a concession from bravos to where they forgive all the crown's debt so like even the setbacks turn out to be you know boons for the king but that i guess the the problem with this is uh, that death is an important part of the narrative but there are just so few characters in this story that i feel empathy for right um not not necessarily like i just don't care if they live or die but there, I just there just hasn't been enough character development for a number of these these people who who they, they may be on the page for fifty or so pages, but I, I I have not traveled with them in the same way that I traveled with Arya or Tyrion or someone like that, where right. I would be shocked and dismayed by their death. It's just not that kind of book. And that's the thing, because I, I really liked his two oldest sons, Balon and Aegon, and, you know, he was grooming these guys, but then, you know, like like so much of the rest of the royal family, they end up dying, And but, unfortunately, George had spent a lot of time developing these characters, so, you know, the people that then take the story from this point are much less sketched out, and also, right. George, you know, with 11 children, I th- felt like he started doing a lot where... Just very thinly sketching these kids. Like, this child was lusty, and he sucked his wet nurse dry, but this child was timid, and then this other one was lusty and had... Like, everything was, you know, the Targaryens were these gregarious man and women children, kind of like out of the mold of Bobby B, or they were like these kind of sickly reserved people that you you just you either send to the citadel or you send to the starry sept to be septas and like jaharis and allison we met them as like preteens and mm-hmm. saw their love story and you know was rooting for them these 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 young king and queen that kind of brashly took the throne and started taking charge and you know like i 
I, yeah, it, the the book once we get past the reign of Jaehaerys, I felt like kind of really struggled, and I felt like even George himself was kind of yada yadaing through. Jaehaerys' son uh, Viserys reigned for twenty six years, but he got like fifteen twenty pages. You know, there was just like right. a, the, the the same shit that George I think was afraid of with Jaehaerys. Uh, we we got in full measure with that, and then you know that his family then begat the Dance of Dragons, and George clearly wanted to tell that story, but I was annoyed with the framework because you know essentially he had the, ta- the like a history of a maester, a history of the Septon, the great the the High Septon, and then the history of this mushroom who was the fool for this royal family. Mushroom, mushroom has some interesting takes on on this particular history. But it got so predictable to where he would he would give the reliable history, but then he would tell he'd spend a page and a half in mushrooms fantasies where it's essentially like whatever sexual perversion and violence that is the kind of stock and trade of Game of Thrones is turned up to like eleven, and right. and then but yet every once in a while the high septum would be like me thinks mushroom has the right of it when mushrooms <laughs> biases and bullshit would uh line up with the maester who's collating this this history which well is that, and it is, is really that predictable <laughs> it's predictable in that it's like there <laughs> there's some peace treaty that's being brokered uh-huh. and so so we'll get the you know we'll get sort of the uh the, the the bare bones sketches of 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 it and then mushroom will interject and say of course and then there was a night of passion that followed and right. there was you know this and that debauchery but of mm-hmm. course and then and then we we get sort of like but of course mushroom would say that because mushroom is mushroom and i'm right. thinking well if that's if that if that if he's that predictable why do we need that every single time yeah, I yeah, and I was I was trying I was wrestling. I was like, is this like some kind of sop to? Because I haven't read a lot of first person accounts of ancient history, and I was wondering, like, you know, if you get into like Tacitus or Herodotus, or do they do this kind of thing where it's like, well, here's the reliable stuff, and here's what the people think, and oh, here's this crazy take because they're trying to move copies in the ancient world. Well, and uh, here's here's the what here's what tends to have it, it, actually it's not not many not many people are are writing history as we know it in the, yes, in the true. world that's true but every now and again you will get someone who is you know he's an elite uh, academic and he is writing uh basically to impress somebody so he's writing a history because he's friends with caesar or he's friends with this particular lord or lady or something like that. And he wants them to come off really well in the story. Mm-hmm. And so what you end up getting is you don't get the kind of mushroom stories of debauchery. Now, you will get those with fiction. Sometimes you'll get those with which, with, with accounts of fiction. Um, and, you know, you've got erotica in, in the Greek literature and the Roman literature. But as far as history is concerned, you don't have someone like Mushroom because at the end of the day, you want this to be read either by or to your royal buddies. And you want them to pat you on the back and, and you know, keep them in your court. What you will see from time to time is you'll see, OK, so now Caligula's dead 
and we can really <laughs> say what you know. We can we can tell every right. rumor about Caligula there is, right? We're because everyone up. hated him any anyway, uh-huh. and the and the new the new Caesar. Uh, is you know he he realizes that his uncle was was a total tool anyway. So sometimes mm-hmm. you'll get that, um, but uh, you know the mushrooms coming off as look. I was I was sort of uh, in the guise of a fool in their court, and I got to hear everything, and they didn't know that I was writing this all down. And so now I'm going to tell you, Drew, what what really happened. Uh, yeah. yeah, yeah. There's nothing like that. Uh, I can I can't think of any analog at least in the in the parts of ancient history that I've studied. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. So that so we talked about kind of it being a mixed bag. I'm actually kind of fearful for the next section because I thought that maybe we would get into something. I knew this is the second. There's a volume one, volume two. I thought we might be able to get into Baylor to Bre- the Blessed's rule, which is kind of I always considered an, an analog to kind of an Emperor Constantine type. Um, Huh. Where he's like all in on the faith of the seven, you know, ba- he becomes known as Baylor the Blessed, and that. But no, we're going to end like right in the middle of these what I consider less noteworthy Targaryens, and I'm very huh. curious to see these next two hundred some pages whether Mark, you know, how, how George is going to keep our attention when, because like I said, in, in between Jaehaerys and the dance, like there's so much yada yadaing, and I thought the dance itself wasn't that super compelling, which is crazy when you think about how much dragon on dragon combat there was. Um, yeah. Maybe we can get into the stuff we actually want to talk about. I don't want to belabor these points too much. Um, so, hey, can I ask you a quick question uh, related to kind of the oh geez the the the, the, the very the very skeletal portrait we're getting almost it's almost like we're getting a portrait of so many children who are described in two or three words like right lusty like tit drying (laughs) this one was this one was timid this one was Uh bookish this Uh one was a warrior so if you're gonna reduce a character to that level of superficiality I guess it's inevitable that you're going to fall into some typical male and female stereotypes. And I'm wondering if you were bothered by this at all. It seems like every woman was either attractive or not attractive. Every woman was either able to give the, you know, able to give an air or not. Yeah. Or rebellious or, you know, good natured or whatever. And I just, I I started to get a little bit um, weary of, of the stereotypes, but I, I can be oversensitive when it comes to those sorts of things. What do you think? Um, 
yes, you're accurately trying to portray a medieval world that has all these superstitions and sexism, but what is an author's obligation to kind of like buck that and, and show that like, you know, in, in the world, the good people actually are, are you know, far more enlightened than you'd, you'd expect. And I think they have like, you know, Queen Allison, who for the the good the good two thirds of Jaehaerys reign is essentially a co ruler with him, right? And she's a she's a complex character, especially when she starts dealing with her children. There's no doubt about that. I just you know it just feels like I've met I've met about a hundred female characters in this book, right? And and I know and I can tell you to to a person which one of them is well endowed and which is not, right? I, right? I just feels like come on. Uh, I don't know, because like, certainly there's uh, Martin Lampshade's that, because uh, one of the first real blowouts that Jaehaerys and Queen Allison had was over the fact that Jaehaerys reflexively skipped over his eldest daughter as a suitable heir to the throne. And it's like, right. oh, well, it's going to be fine, because obviously this guy's going to marry his daughter anyway, just like us, and it'll be fine. But like the Queen's like, uh... And then this comes to a head later on when his heir dies... And he still is unwilling to name a a perfectly fine eldest daughter as uh, his heir and instead calls a great council. And, you know, it could be that he's 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 doing his best to adopt a medieval sexist perspective Mm -hmm. in writing this particular history because it's supposed to come from Maston Septons and Fools. Right. It's not supposed to come some modern woke author but at the same time you do it man i i I feel like it's it's repetitive it's getting repetitive i i do wonder though just for real like if martin would have been better suited to make this the maester telling the story like this is kind of like a revisionist maester who's more of a radical and like you know the way marwin doesn't give a fuck about what the other maesters think about his research into magic he's doing it as because he thinks it's right and he's like make this guy be a little bit more like shockingly modern in his commentary Uh and less staid and stodgy and like you know official history like i think it would have flattered I think he would have been able to to make more of his points and and tell something that lines more with his personal politics if he'd gone that way, but he didn't. He chose a point of view of a very conservative, uh, stodgy, prudish maester. All right. Hey, he's got at least one really compelling female character, and she's great. She's Alisane Targaryen, and uh, I hope that they at least make one HBO spinoff about her because she's really interesting. Honestly, and, I would love to see The Reign of Jaehaerys as a yeah. a, ser- a series. It would be pretty it'd be pretty it'd be a bummer because you know, I don't know what point in his in his history that you would like say, "Yep, this is the the happy ending and we won't tell any tales of the woe that befall him," but uh boy, that first 25 years or so, he has a really good run. Or or do it with a like uh, sort of a conscious effort to tell the fans uh, this is this is loosely based on you know a character like Jaharis, so we mm. don't ne- necessarily know the outcome because I always feel mm. like you know that that that's always a it's always a, a point of contention. Uh, but anyway, I think that Alisane's uh, little trip up north is really interesting. Mm-hmm. And um, to kind of set the stage for this, so Jaharis and Alisane are 
they're 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 sort of in the early stages of the golden age, mm-hmm. and they're flying their dragons all over uh, the place trying to make peace. They're doing their progressions and, through the realm. That's right. That's right. And uh, Alisane decides, well, Jaharis is off making peace, and he's going to be a year, half a year. I think is I don't know I forget whether he's I think he's in Essos or King's Landing or something. She says I'm just going to go up to Winterfell. She's at Winterfell and she decides well if I'm if I'm here and my husband's not going to be arriving anytime soon, I think I'm going to go even further north and she goes to the Wall. Mm-hmm. And this is if if you've uh, if you read sort of some of the promotional material for the book, you'll you'll be familiar with this passage. But I thought it was really fascinating. I'll just read this one. Uh, this one uh, paragraph. So she's talking about her uh, her dragon named Silverwing. Thrice I flew Silverwing above ca- high above Castle Black. Thrice I tried to take her north beyond the wall. Alisane wrote to Jaharis. But every time she veered back south again and refused to go. Never before has she refused to take me where I wished to go. I laughed about it when I came down again so that the Black Brothers would not realize anything was amiss. But it troubled me then, and it troubles me still. And immediately when I read that, I thought, aha, I think uh, one of – this is maybe not a fan theory that you came up with, but it's one that you've mentioned a few times, Aaron. The wall is is not just keeping the White Walkers from coming south, that the wall may actually be there to also keep dragons from going north. There's a few theories that really got me when I read, you know, when I when I first started exploring the, you know, the fan community after I had watched the first few seasons and read all the books and the one of the ones that really I thought I was attracted to was this theory that, you know, there's this ancient pact between the first men and probably the children of the forest and the white walkers in and and because you know the White Walkers are great villains, but they're not George Martin villains. Because George Martin always says that, like you know, he disliked the fact that there's like this this dedicated race in Tolkien, the orcs, and they're just just all evil. There's not a lighthearted orc. There's not a orc that wants to be a bard. There's not an orc that just wants to retire and be an innkeeper somewhere. <laughs> they're just all right. bloody minded assholes. And yet Martin has this race of ice monsters who appear to be just a race of bloody minded assholes. And I thought it would be there's 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 some hints in, in the the ancient, you know, Age of Heroes material that we have in the world of Ice and Fire and Tales of Old Nan that um there might be a little bit more mixing like there there's this tale of this thirteenth Lord Commander that fell in love with a White Walker lady and had half White Walker, half human children with her. And there's this this hints that there's there's more to it. And one of the theories that come out of there we talk at length about in, in volume one of our God of Gods of Thrones books is the possibility that this wall is like a DMZ, a demilitarized zone that's like, okay, we're going to be up north and you be south and we're not we're we're going to respect each other's boundaries and you know just like the first men and the, the children concluded a covenant that was forgotten thousands and thousands of years ago that the the first men and the the white walkers have of uh uh concluded a similar covenant and that it's interesting that these beasts of fire like instinctively know not to cross that line or that they can't 
think it, there's there's also another possibility that this is dragons don't like cold because we're about to talk about another account here of dragon like creatures succumbing to cold because because in the pair uh-huh. in the passage immediately before she tries to get him to cross the wall and he doesn't they talk about uh silverwing I think is the name of the dragon that anytime a cold wind would gust over the wall that he would hiss and snap at it like and the the, the dragon was just visibly uncomfortable being that far north it could just be that dragon's cold and you know this right. uh th- there's this this cold wind blowing from the north that it, that the, the dragon doesn't like and and uh but i i think that obviously martin's trying to hint that there there's something more this is a flashing red whoop, whoop, pay attention for your theory crafting kind of thing right and he did release this particular chapter ahead of time right because he knew probably it'd be knowing that he'd get a, get a little bit of discussion going about it uh, so let's let's talk about the other thing I want to talk about that you, we we left last week's discussion with the mystery of Princess Arya and her mounting this thirteen year old princess a headstrong princess mounting the black dread Balerion and taking him off to parts unknown and the first first uh, little bit of this this section deals with the king trying to investigate this mystery that you know there's these unexplained wildfires in uh essos there's these there's a section of the essos where if men go there they never come back and and they're trying to investigate where balerion has gone to and there, there's all their uh all their examinations come up empty or, or they're explained by something else and then one day balerion comes flying back to king's landing and drops off a dying princess aria and she dies within days of returning uh, to King's Landing. And yeah, she looks like she's been starved, and she's wearing ragged clothes. She's she burning bar- with fever. She can barely speak, but what she does say is, "Please kill me! Please kill me! Please!" Kill right? Me. She begs, begs for death. So the uh, we, we've got the the Septon and the Maesters to, like private journals talking about because the official story is she came back with a fever, died some days later, and then the realm mourned for her and everything moved on. But uh, they talked about her description being like flesh cooked with with within her skin was cracked and blackened. Uh, that. Then when they tried dipping her into an ice bath, that her body exploded with these worms that came out of her. And there's always these like these these unholy shapes are kind of writhing within her belly. And they were described as worms with faces or snakes yeah, with hands. Uh, let me, I'll, re- I'll, read the, okay. I'll read this little section here. The okay. things, mother have mercy. I don't know what, how to speak of them. They were worms with faces snakes with hands twisting slimy unspeakable things that seemed to rise and pulse and squirm and they came bursting from her flesh some were no bigger than my little finger but one at least was as long as my arm oh warrior protect me the sounds they made <laughs> yeah so there's a lot you know that you know this this book's been out for a couple of weeks and people are trying to look into this there's you know a lot of the passages in the world of ice and fire talking about the valerians getting really freaky with their experimentation especially uh you know with the because because they were a, a slave empire they experimented with their slaves and and did all kinds of cross animal and human breeding and uh, trying to make, and even in this book, Septon, uh, what's his name? Septon Bar- uh, Bart. Bart, yeah. 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 He uh, he talks about how the Valerians were known to make these chimera 
type creations and he suspects that these are the remnants of like you know cuz uh, cuz his cuz his theory is Arya didn't take Balerion anywhere. This girl jumped on Balerion's back and he just took her wherever the hell he wanted to and Balerion is the only dragon left alive that remembers old Valerian because Valerian's old or, or old Valerian. Right, He's like right, o- right, almost right. 300 years old before he dies. So he remembers pre doom Valer- Valeria and he wanted to return to his ancestral homeland and took, took this girl and she got infected with these abominations that the Valerians had cooked up. And right, he's got, he's got this great line where he says, we've been asking the wrong question. We've been asking all this time. Where did area take uh, Valerian? What we mm-hmm. should have been asking is where Balerion took Arya, right? And and he and he surmises, and that's just his guess. Yes, that they that they go to Old Valeria. Uh, and then what's really disturbing to him is that, and th- is the note that Balerion himself had some pretty serious wounds. He had like nine foot gashes on his side where something with fangs or teeth had had wounded him, and they're like, you know, what the hell is going on in Old Valeria? And one possible so. You know, other than just like, oh, well, maybe there's these things called blood worms that have been discussed, uh, you know, mentioned kind of in the same breath as snarks and, 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 and grump, grumpkins, uh, mm-hmm. that, that maybe these are hints of these, these blood worms. Um, maybe there's still some feral dragons in old Valeria, uh, that, 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 that a lot of people are surmising that, there's a anal- there's analogous situation between what Danny's doing with Drogon and what uh, Arya did with Balerion, where you know uh. Danny jumps on Drogon's back in the uh, slave pits of Marine and flies off and takes Danny out into the wilderness, and Danny is suffering. She's she's actually sick with the pale mare apparently at the end of this. Um, and you know, we, obviously the show takes her in a completely different direction, but some people are wondering whether, uh, Drogon is going to, uh, perhaps take Danny to old Valeria to discover some secret that's going to be vital to the final disposition of the song of ice and fire. It's interesting. I just, I I was just giving a lecture at the university of Dayton here a couple weeks ago, Mm -hmm. and I was going through these ancient, uh, they were kind of meant they're called bestiaries and they were kind of meant as natural history right, encyclopedias right. before people un- really understood the natural world. Um, so they're more theological than anything else. But one of the things that, that I sort of highlighted in these books is that all of the monsters that are, that re- they, the, the ancient mind really believes that these exist, but most of the monsters that they come up with are hybrid creatures Right. So you got a cross between uh, a lion and a man, or a, a cross between two different animals, and, and the belief is that that there are people out there, witches or whomever, who are experimenting and they're taking the, these different seeds and and merging them together to create these abominations. Right. Uh, so it's interesting that this is this is what comes out these hybrid creatures bursting out of her her womb i suppose martin goes there he makes sure that we know that there's smoke coming from both sets of this princess's lips yep that's uh, right and she's 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 so it's not just that she has a fever you can't even touch her she's she's burning uh you know she's burning through someone's armor so mm-hmm. he, they can feel her heat right. the other thing i was curious about this is that 
back when the uh, I forget which book this is, but um, uh, one of the faceless men, it may be Jack and Hagar. I'm not sure. He's he's explaining the history of the fa- faceless men and that they mm-hmm. were once they come they descend from uh, a people that were once slaves in the mines. Right. Of Valeria, and he mentions these things called fireworms that, that yes. really, really hate humans. Right, and uh, so I, I, there was part of me that wondered, like, oh, she, she's hot, and they, she's got these worm-like creatures, and there is there is sort of a conjecture here that she's gone to Valeria, so maybe these are the fireworms. I'm not, I'm not sure what to do with that information. Yeah, that's what I'm, I I said bloodworms. I meant to say fireworms. Yeah. And also, like, correspondingly, there's this uh, Victorian character who is, uh, you know, brother of, of Euron, Greyjoy, and he is sent by Euron to go essentially fetch Daenerys to, to be his, his wife. And and on the way over there, he gets this wound on his arm that festers, and uh, this this red priest heals him, but his hand is left smoking and cracked and burnt-looking, and there's some theory crafting in the last week or two that su- suggests that maybe uh, Victarian's been infected with these fireworms ah, that okay. to, uh, with some kind of magic from the 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 red priest that is is healing him and making him stronger or something like that so because the, the descriptions for of what that's do this thing's doing to their flesh is almost almost identical okay um, and i think now that you say that because i wasn't familiar with that theory but now that you're now that you say that i feel like i ought to correct myself the text doesn't actually say they came from bursting forth from her womb. It just says from her flesh. Right. Um, so it could be that, you know, the, these these worms were all throughout her body or something like that. Well, the, the final theory that I've been uh, saving is that there is a suggestion that the Valerians themselves are an actual human-dragon hybrid. Because there is something special about their blood in so much as that every dragon rider that we know of thus far has had, a, you know, has been a, a, a Valerian or a, a Targaryen or Targaryen bastard. So at, at least, you know, of mixed of mixed blood. And, you know, the, the, if Valerians are doing these hybrids that... Um, it's it's possible that they did some genetic engineering using these fireworms to produce the line of dragon riders these these lords that could actually you know commune with the dragons in in some way and the dragons would recognize as kin uh and that the fireworms were somehow either byproducts or mistakes or you know like a catalyst to to get this transformation so that would imply that the the, the valerians actually are special in some way yeah, I mean, I, I can, I can totally see that being the case. I'm always a little bit cautious about this, mm-hmm. and I think you, you, you know my feelings about the, the sort of the dual ethics of ruling class versus oh, sure. commoners, sort of thing. Mm-hmm. He's just, he's just bigger and better and wiser, and and he's meant to rule where yep. where commoners are not meant to rule. Yeah. Um, it, it's it's a myth that has created all kinds of misery in our own history. There's a couple other things I want to talk about because, like, I again, I found that the Dance of Dragons was not as exciting as I was hoping for because it's right. like a modern Hollywood blockbuster movie where 
there's dragons fighting. Uh, I thought an obvious uh, is a kind of a humane war, and that the Targaryens essentially fought more Targaryen on Targaryen than than anything. Like, you know, instead of having tens of thousands of men fighting and dying as as you know the dragons are fighting overhead, it's just essentially dragon on dragon combat. There's um, and there's a lot of intrigue, like uh, like assassins. Mm-hmm. Assass- there's one this one scene where assassins break into the the queen's room and say right. and say. Uh, okay, tell me which one of your sons uh, I should kill. And she says, just kill me. And they're like, nope, it's a son for a son. You know, your enemy lost a son. Now you're going to have to lose a son. And so she chooses the younger of the two. The two-year-old. And she says, kill him. What they do is they kill the older one and whisper into the two-year-old's ear, your mama wanted you dead. <laughs> and then they right. leave with right. the head of the older boy. So, you know, it's it's... It's tame in that we don't have the carnage of the battlefield, right? But it's it. I mean, that's pretty. That's pretty dark. And you got this fucking mushroom where every single account you have to after they tell <laughs> us what actually happened, you then get the you know a Cinemax after hours version of it from the the, the point of view of mushroom. <laughs> uh, but the core problem is like like I said, like a Hollywood blockbuster. Lots of cool action, and these fight scenes go on for a very long time, but I didn't really care about any of the characters that were doing it, yeah. and so, right. like, whatever. Uh, there's an interesting bit about identical twin king's guards that found themselves on opposite ends of the battlefield, that they're, the taming of the wild dragons is kind of interesting. There's a, there's a side note about um, a clutch of dragon eggs that one of the dragons laid in the crypts of Winterfell, yeah. And well, that was that was one of Mushroom's rumors, right? It's one of Mushroom's rumors, but the interesting thing is like there's been a long long time speculation that there is a dragon that lies beneath uh Winterfell. And because you know Winterfell famously has these geothermal vents that is one of the reasons it's a stronghold of the north is that it stays warm even in the the coldest of the winters. And a lot of people think, uh. you know, the old folklore says that there is a uh, a dragon that's that sleeps in the bowels of Winterfell, and his breath is what is what warms the earth. But if this is the one in, one instance that mushrooms got the right of it, and there are a clutch of eggs deep within the bowels of the necropolis of the crypts of Winterfell, and it's warmed by a geothermic a geothermal hint a vent, then it's possible these dragon eggs might hatch and be a part of the story going forward. Um, or or it's one of these these instances where the rumor is is too good not to not to play with yeah right? yeah so it's like uh like you know th- th- we've got lots of mythologies that are that are basically built out of i mean every volcano god you just look at sure. every volcano god in every culture and there's there's basically this is a mythology that rose out of the the sheer massive power of a volcano. You need to have some story to explain how it got there and what our relationship to it to it you is. Have to, yeah. If you don't have the scientific so, method, you worship it. Absolutely. Right. <laughs> but there's a there's a current, you know, there's there's sort of a uh there, there's a little kernel of truth to the to these bits of mythology, and maybe that's what's going on here like yeah, they don't. There's no dragon that's sleeping under Winterfell, but there may be a kernel of truth to the, to the rumor, you yeah. know. 
Well, so the other, this also brings me to a thing that was mentioned all throughout this book. I was on. I thought that hatching a dragon required some kind of human sacrifice, and that's something that, uh, I was, I was going to. I'm so glad you brought it up, and I feel like I need to sort of backtrack. It was pretty suspicious the way that that George answered his question because he he got answer, he got asked directly, "Does there need to be a human sacrifice in order to hatch a dragon?" And he was sort of like, mm, "Well, there are clues in the book, but I I don't think I want to answer that." Mm-hmm. And I thought that was a pretty telling non-answer. Mm-hmm. But I'm reading through this book, and there's just dragons and dragons and dragons and dragons. And I could probably go back and count the number of like funeral pyres mm-hmm. and and try to connect it to see, mm, I wonder if, okay, so this guy was ritually on a, on a, on a funeral pyre, and then we see the birth of these, this clutch of dragons. But I think more and more, I probably need to walk this one back. I just, well, there's just too I, many dragons. But, but, because like, I... I, I wish I had the time, and I don't, because I barely have the time to read the 230 pages I have to each week with all my other stuff I'm doing. But yeah. I had an inkling of, like, well, what if Anthony's right? Because there is a lot of Targaryen death, like mysterious, like ill-fated death. And I would love to count the number of times where they mention a king puts a dragon egg in their baby's crib to 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 hatch so they're like you know there'll be a bonded hatchling and dragon rider uh-huh. and then yeah. a corresponding sudden targaryen death because it would be interesting that if they're the, the if the targaryens were paying the the you know the iron pi- price for their dragon eggs the whole time and just didn't know it like they think that there's this family is just sure. covered in tragedy and the most prolific time of the dragons when uh, Queen Allison and Jaehaerys were punching out babies like movie tickets and the dragons were breeding was brought about the dance of the dragons where we had a corresponding a number of uh, Targaryens killed and dragons dying and I like again there's I don't know if you can get in the back us out and be like okay dragon egg hatch whoop Targaryen dead boom like but I think there's enough maybe wiggle room there that someone could say that uh, there there is some sort of life force that has to be paid there. I don't know. So we leave this this section of the book where the dance is kind of like at a a temporary moment of victory for the black side of the Targaryens. That is the the women heirs. The Queen Rhaenyra is sitting on the throne, and there's a whole procession of people doing obeisance to her and, and pledging support. She sits on the throne all day and all night taking pledges of loyalty, but when she gets up, all the court notices that she suffered several cuts to her legs and arms as she sat on the Iron Throne, and the rumor is that it soon will reject her, Uh, and I'm presuming that the dance is going to rage on, and honestly, I don't know what's going to happen in the next 230-some pages because I feel like... All of the the good stuff from this era of Targaryens is 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 past, and you know we're a long ways off from Baylor the Blessed or the Blackfire rebellions or the things that kind of launched the modern era of Targaryen history. I mean, and it seems like now it's just going to be now's the time of the stunting of the dragons and uh and and all that. So. Well, yeah, that's that's true. I am going to be looking for little Easter eggs. Mm-hmm. You know, that will help me understand some of the plot right. points of the novels. I will be looking to see what, you know, what are the hints that 
that this particular narrator tells us about how the dragons come to be diminished. Right. Uh, because that, that may or may not feed into that sort of the maesters are killing the dragons theory. Um, so there are little things like that that I'm still looking for. And, you know, I give give Martin the benefit of the doubt. You know, even in this particular section where there were, you know, a good 10 pages at a time that were really dull, that 11th page was, was, was worth it, you know? We're getting geared up for the 6th Annual Summer Badass Fest. And while we're working on a slate of apex badass films to enjoy, we've got an early action-packed announcement to make. Just like last year, we're kicking off badass season with a live movie watch and podcast recording. We've rented out a theater for connoisseurs of action films and bald move fans that just want to have a great time. Unlike last year, this year's movie is top secret. Hush, hush. No hints, except it's incredibly badass. It stars an absolute icon of the genre, We're willing to bet most of you haven't seen it, and it's going to be an incredible viewing experience with a packed house of bald movers. Those of you who came to last year's screening of Total Recall know what a party it was, and those of you who didn't, (laughs) now's your chance to experience it. Meet me and Jim, order some custom movie-themed drinks at the theater's full bar, then watch us record the full podcast for the movie. We reserved a venue over twice the size as last year, but seating is still limited. It's happening Friday, 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 June 21st at 7 p.m. in our hometown of Cincinnati. Get full details and buy tickets at baldmove.com slash live. Cincinnati's actually a pretty great city to visit, and we've got lots of details for side adventures on our event page as well. The Reds are playing the Boston Red Sox in their fantastic Riverside Stadium. The thrills of Kings Island just minutes away, and I'll be leading a kayak trip down the scenic Little Miami River on Saturday. Again, get full details and get your tickets now on our Badass Fest 6 page at baldmove.com slash live live. Shall we get the feedback now? Let's go. All right, feedback. Uh, you can send feedback to Game of Thrones at baldmove.com, or we also have weekly discussion threads for Fire and Blood and Game of Gods and Thrones on our forums, forums.baldmove.com. First up, Jordan N. Do you guys have any theories as to why the Targaryens seem to have a pretty high rate of miscarriages and stillbirths? Also, why they are more often mo- described as monstrous rather than humans with wings and scales and twisted limbs. They're described several times in graphic detail, which makes me think it's somehow significant. So let's take this part first. I have a theory, Anthony. What's yours? Well, I don't have a theory, but I will point out that in the pre-modern period, the infant mortality was really high. And it was less high if you were royal and you had all of the, you know, the amenities and and the, the maesters and good diets and yeah. But you know, you know, it's at, at certain points in history, about one in one in five women would die in childbirth. So mm-hmm. I mean, that, that's an that's an enormous rate. I guess I would challenge the premise that the Targaryens have a high infant mortality rate. Uh, it could just be that Martin is being faithful to the medieval uh, problem of childbirth. 
But that's not that's not as interesting as whatever theory you're going to come up with next. Incest. It's a bad oh. idea. <laughs> it leads to birth defects and and uh, miscarriages and all kinds of tragic things. So and, I and, mean, and fireworms. Yeah, and fireworms. So all all what you said is true as well. Moving on to this additional point, Jordan continues. Additionally, is the frequency of Targaryen deformities another piece of evidence that Tyrion is a Targaryen? The physical descriptions of him have some similarities to descriptions of some of the miscarried babies with his twisted limbs and misshapen characteristics. We don't encounter many Westerosi dwarves. The ones we have been introduced to mainly seem to come from Essos. Maybe in Martin's universe, the genetic possibility of dwarfism is something that's only shared by people of Essos, which would rule out Tyrion being the fruit of Tywin's loins. Um, I, in, in the books, for sure, there's a lot more dwarfs. Uh, there's just so many that get killed in Cersei's mad quest to find her brother because she just essentially right. pays for dwarf heads to be brought to her. Um, right. But so I don't, I don't know about that, but. There's certainly no shortage of theories suggesting that Tyrion is a uh, half Targaryen or secret Targaryen, and in fact, we we uh, in both of our books we end up considering uh, potential parallels there. Yeah, no, yeah, Tyrion. Tyrion is one of our favorite characters, uh, period. But also. There's there's some fun there's some fun foreshadowing that happens with Tyrion, and uh, yeah, you know he's he's it's fun it's fun to imagine him as a secret Targaryen. Let's just put it yeah. that way. Yeah, and like you know that would potentially give him uh, a potential to ride a dragon, which would be. You know, you know, they talk about Varys, like, the smallest man can cast a large shadow. If you put the smallest man on a giant dragon, he casts a pretty damn big sh- shadow. So I always thought that would be cool. I don't think it's a possibility in the show, but it's very much a possibility in, right. the, in the books. And we should mention that Mushroom, who, who who we're both tired of hearing, Mushroom is actually a little person as well. He is. Yeah, he is. He he also claims to have a schlong three times the, the size of, of the king. Right, right, right. And a cunning and penetrating intellect as well to go along with it. Uh right. which very much well, it's it's funny cuz like I think I think there's a line that um much of the royal family assumed he was a lackwit, which is right. why they were so free to talk in front of him and then why after they're all long gone and buried, he was able to just do this devastating tell all of the royal of the royal family. So Right. And then eventually he's got this line that says Eventually, they all started taking counsel from me. Right, uh, I was the, the invisible. I was the invisible king in Motley. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. So, so he kind of fancies himself as uh, sort of the, the the puppeteer behind the the Dance of Dragons. Robert H said, "I know you and Jim said this during season seven, but this book confirms how much I disdain Jon Snow's real name being Aegon. There have been so many goddamned Aegons in the book, and I still over for three hundred pages to go. I get why it's such a popular name, but I feel like because Jon is the prince who was promised, his name should be more unique. Jaehaerys makes so much more sense in my opinion, and I feel like there are some similarities between the two of them. What Targaryen do you guys fits Jon the best?" I mean, I went on record saying that Eamon was the layup there. He was John's mentor just as much as the old bear was at the wall. Um, and I, 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 li- I like that. I like that name. I thought that would have been a nice... Uh, people would be like, oh, yeah, instead of like Aegon the Sixth or whatever. Like, That's my opinion. What, what do you think, Anthony? 
I don't care. I don't, I'm sorry. I, <laughs> You're I can't, over to I Targaryens. Can't get, I can't really get too much heat behind this. I'm I'm gonna call him John. I'll probably call him Jon Snow. Uh, long after it's 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 kosher to call him Jon Snow. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's just my my bent. Yeah. No. I like I like uh, I like King Snow as well. That's, that's something something interesting about that. Uh, one more piece of feedback. He said that the way George described these Targaryen brothers and sisters is so similar to Jamie and Cersei. Are there any other examples of brothers and sisters falling in love in the world of ice and fire? I really wonder if George has been laying breadcrumbs that they're both secret Targaryens and Tyrion is the red herring. So he's he's of the because uh, there is oh. no shortage of uh, f- there is no shortage of rumors that or theories that Jamie and and Cersei are the real secret Lannisters, and Tyrion is just something that George put there to throw us off the scent. <laughs> I'm I'm a bad person to ask that because I don't think those theories ha- have a lot of weight. Um, and also, I can't re- out of the Targaryens and Jaime and Cersei. I'm struggling to think of any brother sister incest in in the world of Ice and Fire. I don't know. Yeah, that's a good question. Um... I mean, do we need more? I, I don't need. I, I I don't think we need any more. But I wanted to ask you a question. Mm-hmm. This there's this character Sarah, right? And she, you know, she's a kind of a wild child, and she ends up escaping. She, she's the, she's the son of the king and queen, and um, she ends up escaping to Essos, and she's becomes a prostitute in Essos. Mm-hmm. And the the speculation is that she probably is making pretty good money because people are paying, knowing that they're that they get they're having sex for a night with a Targaryen princess. Um, and that immediately made me think of Brown Ben Plum. Mm. So Brown Ben Plum is in the books, but not in the movies. And there's this this throwaway line, or maybe it's a paragraph in the books that say that he's got a drop of Targaryen blood in him. Right, and he claims that it was under some one of the Aegons, uh, that that he was he one of his mother was uh, a dragon seed or something like that, and but he can't remember which Aegon it was, and so he's not really clear on it. And I, I immediately thought, oh, maybe George is trying to explain where why Brown Ben Brown Ben Plum has a drop of Targaryen blood in his veins. Well, you know, that's another interesting thing because, like, there's, there's so much potential Targaryen blood in Essos at this point that it gets, you know, it kind of gives fuel to a lot of these, you know, is, is Varys a secret Targaryen? Is Illyrio a secret Targaryen? Is he a Blackfire Targaryen? Or the were like, they're, my God, yeah, there's like, uh, may, maybe it's like a, um, one of those situations like Genghis Khan where, you know, fully half of the population of Essos now could conceivably <laughs> ride a dragon. <laughs> <laughs> because of of poor Sarah and her exile to Essos. Hey, do you think? All right, very general question. Everyone likes the idea of 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 their favorite character being a secret Targaryen. Do you think that there will be at least one more reveal of a secret Targaryen in Martin's world? In the show or in the in the books? Absolutely, absolutely. There, I wouldn't okay, be surprised absolutely. if there were several. But really? I mean, and also since the book has yet to reveal Jon Snow as a secret Targaryen, I mean, I could cheat and say I'm absolutely going to be correct in that there will be one more uh, revealed. But yeah, no, I like eighty percent sure on that one. 
Wow. Okay. That's yeah. that, 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 some pretty big matzo balls you're putting out there, man. Yeah. And every time I see, like, you know, there's, there's a Targaryen princess. Uh, she was one of the lusty ones that her cries echoed through the Red Keep when she was pleasured by her king or whatever. Uh, she had mis, you know mismatched eyes and crooked features and... You know, like, and and also like the weird, like, because a lot of people, well, Tyrion's hair is not exactly the 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 platinum that's supposed to be, but neither was hers, and she was a pure blooded Tar- Targaryen. There's just a lot of these details that Martin's put in there, and, and why else would he do it with the full knowledge of what he's written before, unless he's trying to hint there. Well, I think that we we both agree that something something significant will be revealed about Tyrion. I, I think that there's enough foreshadowing. To, to say in those general terms that Tyrion has there's something in store for Tyrion that it that that isn't on the surface of things. Let's move on to Brandon W. So he says, from what I've gotten from the first six books and a sixth and very weak seventh season of the show is that the House Castamere was an old and possibly great house, almost equal to that of House Lannister. With that being said, why do you think Gurm makes absolutely no reference to Castamere? Uh as of my two-thirds way through Fire and Blood, has he simply just forgot that they existed, or should we assume that they were in reality such a minor house that they played almost no role? Just pondering. Um, I So I'm actually somewhat shocked that Lannisters have played very minor roles in what's going on in Fire yeah, and Blood so far. It's true. It's been... And every indication is that they are the lords of Casterly Rock, and, they're, and he's right mm-hmm. that... We've heard nothing about the the reigns of Castamere, but also like I was um, thinking that you know the B- House Bolton, huge prominent great house in nor- the north. I don't think I've seen the Boltons mentioned once. Yeah, so that's right. it's more you know, and of course the Starks kind of are somewhat remote and removed. You know, there's even a lot be- before the King's Road is completed. There's a lot of contemplation about well, whose side is Stark is going to be on, and like oh, lol, no one cares. By the time he gets his sh- shit to one side or the war or the other it's it'll it'll be over um but i i think that it seems like there's a lot more about the riverlands it's a lot more Mm -hmm. um about dorn there's a lot more about obviously the tyrells this is very southern and and the westerlands and the north are kind of erased from from the history at large i mean they they definitely there's lannisters mentioned and starks mentioned all that but i think it's it'd be a mistake to say that the 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 and especially since the reigns that was they kind of up jumped during um the reign of uh Tywin's father who is kind of a more weak uh less effective ruler it's not like they were always this great house it's just that they were able to profit from the Lannisters uh mismanagement and then Tywin set them to straight the the rights so if we're if we're looking for maybe an in-world answer to this question, I, I'm thinking about this. There's this little passage in Dance of Drag or Dance of Dragons, the book, mm-hmm. um, where Jamie is off beyond the Riverlands. I forget exactly where he's at, but he's not too far. You know, he he's within he's within a couple of hours of of the where he grew up, and he's talking to a couple commoners about this this ancient feud between these two houses mm-hmm. that he's really never heard of before. And he's he's getting the whole history of how this goes way, way back, even before the Targaryens arrived. And uh, so it just goes to show you that if you're going to do sort of a family-centric history, which is what this is, is Targaryen-centric history, 
there's a lot of these little feuds and houses and whatnot that you'll never hear about. Oh, right. Yeah. And even there's even like a, some startling things that like uh, before the Westeros was the Seven Kingdoms, it was the Ten Kingdoms. And in the Age of Heroes, it was the Ninety Nine Kingdoms. But right, right. there were sometimes sure. as many as 132 and as few as 80. So it's like you get the idea that, you know, it's... It's, it's always it's, shifting. It's always shifting, and houses rise and fall in prominence. And, uh, you know, Aegon was a huge dis, you know, because, like, there was two great houses that essentially went extinct, maybe three, and were displaced by others. Um, like, that's how the Tullys became lords of the Riverlands before it was ruled by uh, the Iron Islanders. Um, and that's how, you know, the, so that's how Greyjoys became, that's how the Tullys became a great house. That's how the Tyrells, who were the stewards of the gardeners, uh, became a prominent house. They were, they were not even noble houses before the, 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 the Targaryens came along. So, well, I guess the Tullys were, but, uh, um, Let's move on to Stephen S. I said, glad I wasn't alone and wanting some help on who the F each of these Targaryens belongs to. I feel like I had a good handle on things through the reign of Jaehaerys the first, but it gets dodgy yeah. after that. Amen. Amen, brother. Mayhaps I have yep. not mayhaps I have not been more confused in my five and thirty years. Uh, I couldn't locate a good family tree for those inbred goofballs post fire and blood's release. If you have seen one, would you mind linking it in the sh- next show notes? Um Well, it's funny because like I noticed that the Wiki of Ice and Fire, which is kind of like the Bible for these things, has got a moratorium on Fire and Blood updates until December 20th. So a lot of these clarifications are not in there. But in the back of the book itself, there's a list of the Targaryen successions and a Targaryen lineage that goes 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, at least eight generations of Targaryens, at least through the end of this this book I'm holding. So I don't know if if the Kindle version doesn't have that, but at the very end of the book, there's a there's a a, a lineage chart that's pretty. Detailed. If there's one thing I can guarantee you is that there will be a Targaryen family tree that someone in the world puts on the internet. So it just mm. it's just a matter of time before that exists. Oh yeah, no, and they're 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 gonna like I'm. I'm sure there's people that have already got these things composed in their Google Docs. The second that midnight strikes on December 20th, the wiki of Ice and Fire will be overran by Targaryen loyalists that are setting the records right. Purging the <laughs> blasphemes of Mushroom and replacing it with the true and accurate account of Maester Martin, or whatever his uh, pin name is here. All right. Yeah. Last email, and this goes into a lot more thematic thematic stuff we've been talking in the last few weeks, Anthony, from Lenny C. What are the religious implications of the birth of dragons, and what is the relationship between magic, religion, and dragons? Can you talk about the impact the birth of dragons and the comet have had on the increase in magic, specifically with the warlock's powers and the alchemist's guild's claim of improved wildfire? Um, she has a lot of questions about this. Uh, she wants to talk about the religion and magic I- impacting the White Walkers, um, and maybe this is a corresponding increase in power of the Night's King. That is a corresponding increase that we've seen with the Melisandre and the Pyromancers, etc. Right, um, right. And also, like if the warging of the Stark children is is corresponds to this awakening of magic. So I thought maybe we could talk about uh, these things in particular, and maybe the concept of magic versus religion to an ancient mind. Yeah. This is this is really a really great question. Who who, who asked it again? Lenny C. Okay, Lenny. 
Uh, yeah, yeah, Lenny. Um, this is great because I, it hadn't occurred to me before um, that we should expect magic all over the place in this book because it's pretty clear in the novels that the emergence of these three dragons in Essos sort of reawakes magic all over the place. Yeah. The, the alchemists, the, you know, Melisandre's uh, or Beric Dondarrion's resurrection, yada, yada, yada. Um, the, 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 the warlocks of Karth, they're all beneficiaries of the return of magic to the world in the, in the shape of dragons. Well, now we're reading a book where there's, I don't know, 30, 40, more than that, dragons running around. Mm-hmm. Being born uh, all the or time. flying around. Born, yeah. We should expect there, there to be all kinds of magic and, and uh, you know, instances of magic that are not related specifically to the Targaryens. But we're seeing, I mean, aside from the occasional person that's a, like a woods witch or something like that, uh-huh. we're not seeing any of that. Right. Now you're... So I don't know. I honestly don't know why, you know, if if three dragons pumps up the magic of everyone in the world, why we're not seeing more of that in this book. Yeah, you know, because I remember being excited, like, when we saw the early history of Hall and the early goings-on there, and there was, like, this throwaway line about perhaps a, uh, a princess bathing in blood, and we, 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 we've covered that um, before, but... There wasn't a lot of like warlock and witchery, and especially when you think about like uh, later the Blackfire Rebellion, where fully mm-hmm. like a third it seems of the Targaryens were some form of warlock or witch. Like Sierra, she she star was supposed to dabble in dark arts and blood magic, and the Blood Raven, who eventually becomes the you know the the three eyed crow, he was supposedly like a warlock that used portents and dark magic. Um, yeah. I mean, it's essentially dragons is the only kind of magic that is in the world, and they're not really. Maybe this is no, the ma- just, maybe this is the maester's bias is that he's they're just big reptiles in this book. But yeah, he, yes, I was just gonna say maybe this is the maester's bias because if if you have this if you have these maesters that are famously skeptical about magic, right? Um, they're not, but 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 we're not even hearing rumors, you know. Yeah, because he's he's certainly not shy about giving weird, crazy rumors. Uh, uh, hearing so. these these maesters and septons and fools are so preoccupied with the Tower of Joy Dance that they cannot <laughs> conceive of anything that doesn't relate to sex. Yes, indeed, they're disciples of mushroom. Uh, can you t- can can you talk about can you talk about like the relation between because like I I've you know we had a discussion when we were writing volume two uh, where we're you're talking you're you're among other things you're talking about in the Bible there's this encounter with one of the kings of Israel where he goes and visits a the witch of Endor uh, yeah no relation to the Ewoks and he's wanting to get counsel from one of his the the dead prophets uh, Samuel I think it is uh-huh. and we talked about it's like you know because the bible's not shy about talking about other gods and not even you know like and, and ascribing them as like power as such like you obviously Yahweh yeah. uh Elohim Jehovah the Lord is the most powerful of them but there's you know there's there's other gods mentioned but then you've also got yes. these things like the witch like 
And yeah. it, why, how did the ancient people dis, di, differentiate between religious faith and those miracles and yeah. like witchery and warlock and sorcery and, and magic? Well, I think the first thing we need to uh, settle here is the dispute about whether or not the Witch of Endor actually does come from the moon of Endor. Endor. <laughs> right. Because this is, this is debatable. This, yes. This is, she could have easily – it was a galaxy far, far away – but it's also very long ago, so yeah. she could have, she could have transported. She's from trillions of light to... years and thousands <laughs> yes. of years into the yeah into the the distant past of Earth. Uh, the basic answer to this is that um, in the ancient worlds, the lines between magic and worship were very very blurry, and and this is this is one of the ways that I think that George Martin represents the ancient mind better than than Tolkien does because if if indeed if indeed Gandalf is known in Hobbiton for being for his amazing fireworks uh then there's going to be a shrine to Gandalf in Hobbiton oh for sure that's how the ancient that's just how how come we don't find any temples or or you know churches or whatever in, in middle earth um Martin knows that if there is something that's unexplainable, as unexplainable as, uh, you know, a a shadow baby that's birthed out of Melisandre, the ancient mind is going to try to make sense of that using religious narrative. So the difference between a witch and a shaman is that the witch is your enemy and the shaman is part of your tribe and that's basically it mm. you don't call it you don't call it magic unless it's some foreign person that you don't trust mm. because your your own magicians are only called that by your enemies you call them wise wise men or sages right. or right. shamans um, basically the idea, the accusation in the ancient mind, this is especially true uh, when Jesus is walking the earth. You don't call someone a magician unless you're suspicious that they're working in the dark arts. Mm. Um, and, and of course, if, if one of your own tribe is, is, is performing these amazing, uh, things, then you're going to credit it to your own god, and this is all fine. Well, so basically, we're looking at xenophobia. That, that's that's how people get labeled witches and warlocks and sorcerers. Uh, this is xenophobia talking. Ah, as it does so so, so as it talks so many times throughout human history. Hey, man, this this makes it all the way to the mo- modern period. We we were drowning witches for uh, for many many centuries. Uh, all right, I, that's all the feedback we got. If you'd like to send us more, of course, Game of Thrones at baldmove.com. Uh, we are going to be back next week. Uh, we've got some exciting things happening. We're going to be closing out the last third of Fire and Blood. We're going to be closing out our coverage 2018 of Gods of Thrones and Fire Fire and Blood. We're going to have Kim Renfro on to talk about her thoughts about Fire and Blood. Anthony will be rejoining me to talk about the last third. Hopefully, we'll hear from you guys and what you thought of the uh the 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 petering out of the dragons in, vo- in, in what it seems like we're in for for volume one of fire and blood 
Don't forget, if you are moved to purchase Fire and Blood or our own book, Gods of Thrones, if our discussion uh, with Anthony and myself has, has motivated you to do so, you can find links to Gods of Thrones, our book, here in the show notes, and it's available in both ebook and physical book format. Again, it's you have plenty of time to order it now and get it uh, for Christmas uh, for you or your loved ones, and we hope you do that. We'll be back next week. Until then, I'm Aaron. And I'm Anthony. See ya. See ya.